we'll turn to a time of looking further uh, into God's Word together, uh, looking at Psalm 69. This one is not printed in your bulletins. We'll be reading the entirety of the psalm, verses 1 through 36. If you picked up a Bible on the way in, that's on page 483, begins on 482, rather. Hymn number 69, a blatantly messianic psalm, uh, and you will hear the echoes of Calvary all throughout as we are reading these words together. Psalm 69, and before we begin to read, let us go again to the Lord in prayer and ask that he would bless uh, our reading and our hearing. O Lord, our God, we come to you humbled by the readings we have already heard, the message again of your passion for us, passion uh, that you would send your Son and that Christ would give his life be laid down as a sacrifice for sinners, uh, that he would endure scoffing and scorn uh, and nails and spear. Oh, help us tonight as we consider even Psalm 69 and the suffering Savior who died for us. Help us to consider the way that you give us joy and life through your suffering, the way that you have come to give us promise and hope. Help us, O Lord, to find our all in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now Psalm 69. This is to the choir master, according to the lilies, the Psalm of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. O Lord, God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept, and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I'm the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul, redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies. 
You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him whom you have struck down. And they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let the heaven and the earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servant shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Ascends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. If you spend enough time in the Psalms, you will notice that there are some themes that are repeated over and over again. It's not that the Psalms lack variety. It's quite the opposite. Calvin is uh, known for saying uh, that, uh, that the Psalms represent an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. The full catalog of human emotion and experience from the heights to the depths, every joy and every affliction, every heartache and virtue and frustration known to man can be found in the Psalms, but some things can be found there more than others. The all-surpassing glory of God is a repeated theme, the pleasure of worship, the beauty of creation, the struggle to maintain faith in a world that is filled with evil, and ah yes, there's a lot of suffering there. A recurring theme in the Psalms, a startling amount of suffering in the Psalter. Everywhere you turn, it seems the singer is surrounded by some enemy or despairing in some pit or tottering on the brink of some destruction. And we get the feeling that if the Psalms really are this anatomy that Calvin believed them to be, that perhaps there are some parts of the soul we wish we didn't have to study so very often. And yet by experience, we recognize that this balance of the Psalms, sometimes raw, sometimes savage and filled with suffering, this balance closely matches the life that we live under the sun. See, sooner or later, in, in some circumstance and at some point, we all have to answer the question of what we ought to think of suffering. Sometimes we try to sanitize that question. We imagine suffering as though it were a specimen in a Petri dish. And it's there behind glass somewhere in an environmentally controlled 
place and, and, and we speak of suffering maybe categorically, that it's something that happens somewhere else. It's something that disrupts lives of people that we will never know or never embrace. But eventually that hermetically sealed chamber is breached. We too are infected. Maybe we're the ones who end up enduring the suffering, or worse, there is someone that we love dearly who is suffering, and we can do nothing for them but watch and pray and weary ourselves with crying out to God. Like so many other psalms, Psalm 69 reminds us that the world we live in is filled with suffering. But Psalm 69 also reveals Christ. And that means that as we hear this song sung on the lips of our Savior, it reminds us that in this world and in our suffering, we are not alone and we are not undone. It reminds us that Jesus has come not only to suffer with us, but to suffer for us. We've read that already in Matthew, and I think combined Uh, With the readings that we've heard in Matthew and tonight in Psalm 69, we get a chance to answer this question, what ought we to think about suffering? Where it's come from? How it got here and how it got so bad? What are we to do with this question that we all have to answer? There are a few things I think that we know from Psalm 69. First, we need to acknowledge that suffering has its source. There is a source to suffering. This might be counterintuitive to us, especially if we are of the mind, as so many of us are, that from our vantage point, suffering often seems senseless. It seems random. It seems as though it comes out of nowhere spontaneously, and we don't know how it showed up. It's the baby who's born and lives only a few days. The attack of panic, anxiety that cripples us. It's the accident that leaves children as orphans. And from our finite view, suffering often seems senseless. In fact, that's how we differentiate uh, between suffering and adversity. Sometimes we use those interchangeably, but we ought not to, because in its true sense, adversity is, is a barrier between you and something else that you're trying to get to. It's an obstacle along the way to some other goal, some other purpose. But suffering is not like that. Suffering consumes your purposes. If you are suffering, the goal is survival. Did you hear the way that David spoke of it in verse 1? Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I wonder if you've been there. If you've experienced that. That's what suffering can feel like when you're in the midst of it. And so if adversity is a speed bump, suffering is a brick wall. And when you have hit that wall, one of the most difficult things to realize is that wall has come from somewhere. It's not just there randomly, surprisingly, spontaneously. There is a source to our suffering. We get a glimpse of the source in verses 4 and 5. That's what David says. More in number uh, than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Notice in those verses that David is speaking of two separate kinds of suffering. One of them is oppression at the hands of wicked men. 
The other is chastisement at the hands of a righteous God. You might say that in the strict sense, what we see here is that one of these sufferings is utterly undeserved. David makes his plea as the righteous sufferer, the one who suffers what he doesn't deserve, but on the other hand, there is something that he deserves. And he acknowledges that to the Lord, that there is a suffering that is warranted. The, uh, the oppression, he speaks, of being hated without a cause, of being attacked with lies, and what he did not steal being made to repay. And it's injustice in its oppression. But to the Lord, he speaks of his folly and his wrong. At first glance, those two different kinds of suffering may seem completely different, utterly different, not even in the same ballpark as one another, and yet, if we dig a little deeper, they both have the same source. Out of the same spring issues forth both oppression and discipline. All of our suffering, the source of our suffering is human sin. Ours or somebody else's? Sometimes we're afraid to make that connection. We're afraid to make that connection because we think that if sin and suffering are too closely connected, then every time we face a difficulty, we have to do the job of looking inside ourselves to see if we have some unrepentant offense that we have not brought to the Lord. And that's not the way it works, not always at least. Your personal sin can't and, and probably won't always answer the immediate question of why are you suffering? But if we take a step back, we realize that the, the aspect of, of human sin always answers the question of why is there suffering? Why does it exist in the first place? Why is it a question that we have to ponder and answer and struggle over? Where does sin, with a struggling uh, and suffering come from? And the answer is, it comes from sin. We suffer because we live in a world which we have broken by iniquity. A world in which we sin and are sinned against. A world where creation itself has been cursed because the creature is in rebellion. As Paul says, we suffer because we inhabit a world that's been subjected to futility a world that is in bondage to corruption and groaning in pangs of expectation, waiting for God's victory over sin and all its consequences. We suffer because we live in a sin-stained world, and we groan as the undertow of suffering threatens to sweep us away. But dear friend, suffering has a source. It's the first thing we need to understand. But suffering also has its symptoms. Suffering has its symptoms, and we see this all throughout the psalm as David reiterates the basic point from verses 1 and 2. The basic idea, the basic picture of, of suffering in this passage, in this psalm, is that of being overwhelmed. Take a look at verses 14 and 15. The floodwaters make another appearance. The deep is ready to open its mouth. The mire erodes underfoot and entraps the ankles. And that's what suffering feels like. It feels like quicksand swallowing you whole. Sometimes suffering feels like you're standing on the shore watching that enormous wall of water hurling in your direction and there is nowhere to go and there is no foothold and there is no shelter and all you can do is brace for impact. In this sin-stained world, suffering feels like you're being overwhelmed. There's a symptom that's actually worse than that. 
verse 20. Reproaches have broken my heart. Don't take that statement too lightly. A broken heart. This is, this is not junior high puppy love broken heart. This is not time heals all wounds broken heart. This is a, a, a suffering that comes from a heart that is utterly broken. The word actually is shattered, is devastated. As you say, reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. Have you ever wondered about the weight of those words? Showing up in Scripture, written by a believer, and yet he's able to speak of his heart being so broken that he is despairing. Here's David. The king and the shepherd of Israel, the one who knows the Lord and who has been spoken to by the Lord, who has been anointed by God's prophet, and he knows the Lord is doing something in his life, and yet he is broken and despairing. David, who knows that the Lord is his shepherd, and that even in the valley of the shadow of death there is no evil that he ought to fear, and yet he can speak of his heart being so broken that he is in despair, and we wonder what's going on with David. Is he schizophrenic? Has he lost his faith? Or is he merely human? Is he enduring the suffering of humanity in a sin-broken world? That's one of the symptoms, by the way. You can be so overwhelmed by your suffering that you are overtaken with despair. You know, the thing about symptoms is that uh, they're really part of a larger problem. There's the old saying, where there's smoke, there's fire. Where there are symptoms, there is disease, and where there is suffering, there is sin. And all the sufferings and the despair of this sin-cursed world are really symptoms to remind us of the reality of a sin-cursed eternity. Sin has its consequences. The wages of sin is death. To death, I think we would rightly add suffering and despair and separation and damnation. And every pang of suffering now reminds us that there is a floodwater which never recedes. There is a despair that is never relieved. There is a worm which does not die and a fire that is not quenched. Suffering is a symptom of a larger disease. The disease of sin, which is like a plague, which cannot be eradicated unless you take everything that its vile black spots have touched and incinerate it. It's the only way that you get rid of it. And so suffering has its source. Suffering has its symptoms, but praise the Lord that suffering has its substitute. That is the beauty of this psalm. Not just how accurately it depicts the suffering of humanity, not so that we can read it and say, oh, I've been there. The beauty of this psalm is that we can read it and we can say, Jesus has been there. The splendor of this psalm is how accurately depicts what the Lord suffered for his people in their stead and in their place. We cannot read this psalm without hearing the echoes of Calvary and thinking of the Gospels and hearing the voice of Jesus saying these things to us. He is the one whose face was covered with dishonor. He is the one who was stripped and humiliated and mocked and beaten and spat upon. He was the one who suffered at the hands of men for the sake of the Lord. One who became a reproach and a byword. Remember what we just heard? 
Matthew chapter 27, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. You're the son of God, come down from the cross. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. The robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And so when we read verses 20 and 21, we ought to hear them coming from Christ upon the cross. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. See, it's not enough for us to be amazed that David wrote this psalm, that David is so much like us, that suffering touched even his heart as well. What we need is to hear a greater king pray this prayer for us. That's the answer to the question of suffering. It is to recognize that Jesus endured all the despair and all the suffering of our human condition. The answer is to recognize that he endured every symptom of suffering even though he had nothing to do with the sin that conceived it. That's what Isaiah tells us. He's the one who had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. There's a sense in which uh, verse 5 in Psalm 69 is the only verse that cannot rightly be attributed to Christ in himself, in the life that he himself lived. Because there, David is speaking of wrongs and of folly, but Christ had committed no folly, he had done no wrongs. Paul says he knew no sin. Yet he did endure suffering. This man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, he knew, he knew what what it was to be weary with crying out. He knew what it was to have his heart shattered to feel the weight of despair like a heavy blanket holding him down. Why? So that he could be our companion? So that he could share an empathy and and a shared experience and put his arm around us and say, you know, I've been there. Well, yes. Yes, that is why, but more. Christ willingly endured all of these things, not just to be our companion, but in order to be our substitute. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He came to be our substitute. God put him forward as a propitiation, that is, an atoning sacrifice, a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. He came as our substitute. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. He came as our substitute. That's why he was mocked and derided and reproached. That's why he allowed his heart and his body to be crushed. He suffered willingly in order to take our sin upon himself and to free us from our bondage to corruption. To set creation free. To deliver all those who call upon him for salvation. He suffered to destroy the sin that is destroying us and to put it in the grave where it belongs. The real climax of this psalm comes at the end of verse 32. Everything after 32 and 33 is denouement. Here's what we read. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. 
no longer broken, but let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy, does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Now, if you are in the midst of suffering, if your lungs are weary with crying out, and you read the end of verse 32 and verse 33, you might wonder how you could believe that this is true. And the answer is that you can believe that it's true because there is a substitute. There is a substitute and a Savior who underwent all the symptoms of human suffering in order to deal with the sin that gives it power. There is a beautiful passage in Exodus chapter 3. The Lord has appeared to Moses in the burning bush. The people are slaves in Israel. And what he tells Moses is that I have heard the cries of my people. I have seen their afflictions, and I know, and I have come down to deliver them. How can we know that Psalm 69, verse 32 and 33 is true, that the Lord hears his people who are prisoners? Because we see the substitute, and we recognize that the Lord hears, and the Lord sees, and the Lord knows, and the Lord has come down deliver his people. This is the answer to our suffering. To know that there is a substitute who is able to sympathize with our weakness, who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. A substitute who gives us the confidence to draw near to the throne of grace, to receive mercy and to find grace to help in time of need. Because he was the one who suffered as our substitute. Please join me in prayer. O Lord, our God, we thank you for the words which we have heard from you tonight. Thank you for the reminder of Christ and his sacrifice and his immense love for us. It cannot be bought or purchased or even deserved. And yet you give it as a free gift, your grace and your mercy poured out upon your people. O strengthen us, we pray, in this word of Christ. Give us faith to draw near, repentance of sin a new life and hope and promise of forgiveness in him. O Lord, make us your people. Make us those who worship you in spirit and in truth, because we have seen and heard from you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.